Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1 on page 77. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, you shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do sit down. Very warm welcome, particularly if you're here for the first time. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards. And uh, we're beginning a new series today. Uh, last year we began the book of Exodus. We did chapters 1 to 19. Um, this autumn we're going to do chapter 20. And we're going to do the, uh, the Ten Commandments. But we're going to do them one commandment at a time. Just to look really closely at uh, what God is saying in these verses and what they mean today in the 21st century for us in our lives. So let's pray and ask God for help as we come to his word. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. It is our hope, joy, song. It endures forever. And so today, as we read these ancient words, would you, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes 
so we see clearly what these things mean for us and in our world today as we seek to live as Christian people trusting in Jesus, living for him, bringing glory to him would this help us as we do that Amen So it is page 77 in the Bible, so you'll need that open in front of you. We're just going to focus on verses 1 to 3. And you can follow on the handouts um, on the back of the notices. What are we doing, though, having a sermon series like this on the Ten Commandments in the 21st century? I guess if you go out there in the world and you start talking about the Ten Commandments, there'll be two kind of main views that you might come across. On the one hand, there's the idea that people might have that the the Ten Commandments are self-evidently a good guide to leading an upright and moral life. And maybe particularly among what is now a bit of an older generation, you, you, you will find people who will say things like, well, I'm not really a Christian, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I, I don't really go to church. But, you know, I'm a good person and I try to live my life by the Ten Commandments. And behind that is the idea that the Ten Commandments don't really say anything that isn't inherently obvious in the 21st century. You know, stealing and murder, they're obviously wrong. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. But one of the issues there is that those who would say that kind of thing probably are only really thinking of stealing and murder when they, when they think of the Ten Commandments. Because what are the other ones? Oh, well, yes, there's, oh, yes, there's something about uh, uh, adultery, and we might want to take a slightly more nuanced view of that today, people might say. Was there something in there about parents? Well, yes, that's fine as far as it goes, but, you know, you've got to live your life. Lying? Well, yes, but life is complicated, and the little white lie never hurt anyone, and on it goes. So you've got those kind of feelings out there in the world that you might come across. But then there's another kind of main view that you might come across of the Ten Commandments today, which is summed up by Richard Dawkins in an article a few years ago, where he said this. He said, Do you advocate the Ten Commandments as a guide to the good life? Then I can only presume that you haven't read the Ten Commandments. Because, he goes on to say, when you read them, you find, well, the first three are about Israel's God being the one and only true God who will not tolerate worship going to anyone or anything else. And by definition, that is not tolerant, which is the kind of 21st century unforgivable sin. And he points out then the penalties that the wider Old Testament law applied to those who broke the Sabbath or committed adultery which included stoning and things like that. So he says, oh, look, come on, the Ten Commandments is a relic of history. The obvious parts are so obvious we don't need a God to tell us about them, and the rest are embarrassingly problematic. So, there we have it. Why study the Ten Commandments, particularly at this kind of pace that we're going to go at, you know, one commandment a week? Does it really merit that kind of attention? Well, one answer is, well, we're Christian people. We take God's word seriously. We've just been singing about that. And, you know, as I said, we got to chapter 19 a few months ago last year or whatever it was. And so, well, it's it's appropriate now to continue with chapter 20. There's your answer. That's why we're studying the Ten Commandments. 
But there is more to say than that, because the Ten Commandments, or as they're actually called in the Bible, uh, they're called the Ten Words, that's how they're referred to, and you can see in, in verse 1, God spoke all these words, um, and they are central to the life of Israel in the Old Testament, these words that God spoke on the mountain. Uh, they're words that God spoke directly, and later in Exodus we read they were inscribed by God's finger on the tablets of stone. The first set of stones get broken when the Israelites make a golden calf and, and worship it, so a second set are made, and then these stones are placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, and they get carried around at the centre of God's people, and later in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. They are literally central. They're right there in the middle of God's people, which is where the, the, the tabernacle is. Um, and they're not just central, though, to the Old Testament people of God. When we come to the New Testament, we find Jesus reaffirms the, the, the Old Testament law. And in particular, he, he speaks, he says he's come to, not to abolish, but to fulfill the law in the Sermon on the Mount, and exactly what that means is an important question. We thought about that before when we studied the Sermon on the Mount. But much of his teaching uh, picks up the, the teaching of the Ten Commandments and applies it to Christians. And then we actually see it if you go to the, the New Testament letters and you look at the kind of what we, what we might call the ethical instruction, which means the kind of the second half of the letter where the Apostle Paul or whoever's writing kind of says this in the light of the gospel, this is how you live your life. And you go to something like Ephesians in the New Testament and you look at the instructions they give and the structure of it looks very much like the Ten Commandments. So it is influencing everything. Uh, central to the entire Bible's message. But then beyond that, actually central, the Ten Commandments, to the history of the church. Do you know, I mean, we can't see it actually, but behind this screen, on the wall, what's on the wall there? The Ten Commandments. In the, in the traditional language of the King James Version. Central to the history of the church, and actually, if, we're, if we think about it, central to the history of Western culture itself over the last 2,000 years. You see, someone like Richard Dawkins might ridicule the Ten Commandments for kind of stating the obvious. Oh, oh, oh it's wrong to murder, is it? He puts in this article. You know, oh, oh, I didn't realise unless, unless somebody had told me that. Well, actually, the reason it's so obvious to us in the 21st century is that we've had 2,000 years of Christian influence on the way that we live, such that it is obvious to us in our culture today. But in Roman culture, for example, you could leave babies on the hillside to die and you could murder your slaves for no reason. It is the Ten Commandments and Jesus' subsequent interpretation of them that have influenced us to the point where we can't imagine how anyone could think that is okay. So that is what we're doing. That is why we're, we're studying this and, and, and working through it at this pace. But this morning we get kind of two for one. Uh, the, the other weeks we'll just do one commandment at a time. But this morning we've got a bit of introduction. Verse 2. As God introduces what he's going to say. And then the first commandment. So God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So what we're going to see this morning is two things 
about God. Two things to see about God from these verses. Here's the first thing you can see on the handout as well. God makes the first move. He makes the first move. And we start not actually with a command or a commandment, but a statement about God that God makes about himself. And that's because one of the greatest dangers with the Ten Commandments is ignoring the context in which they come in the Bible. So if we remember nothing else, we need to remember this. The story of the book of Exodus goes very simply like this. It goes, <clears throat> it goes slavery, rescue, Ten Commandments. Okay? It does not go slavery, Ten Commandments, rescue. No, slavery, rescue, Ten Commandments. Now, why, why is this so important to see? Well, you can see in, in, in verses 1 and 2, this is exactly what God is saying. He's saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, and now, having rescued you, having made you my people and, and rescued you from slavery, now I'm going to give you these commands to show you how to live. And you see, do you see this? This is the opposite of what so many people assume the Ten Commandments must be about. And this is really, really important to see and understand because it's the opposite of what people then assume Christian faith must be all about. Because we're not trying to obey the rules in order for God to rescue us. We're given the commandments because we have already been rescued. And they are two completely different things. I've talked before about the damp flannel view of God. So this is what we often assume that he's like. He's a God from whom we have to kind of squeeze out love and acceptance by good deeds. So keep the Ten Commandments, squeeze hard with your obedience. And if, you, if you're lucky, God, you might get a few drops of love out of that flannel. But the point is, you see, he's not a damp flannel. He is a gushing waterfall that is overflowing and soaking us with his love that we don't deserve. And anything we do then is just a response to the love that he's already shown. He's not there to earn his love and acceptance. It's in response to the love and acceptance he's already shown. So that is verse 2. I brought you out of Egypt. I've set you free. Now let me show you what it looks like to be free. And do you notice the way the Ten Commandments are set up is actually emphasizing that it's about living as people who have been set free and not about earning freedom. Now just notice this. This is really important to see. See, the majority of the commandments, if you look down, are expressed negatively okay so in other words they are saying these are the things that you need to avoid these are the things you need to not do and you see the thing is actually if it is in the end all that meant to be about earning God's love and acceptance and deserving your salvation from God well if that is what it is you wouldn't then expect a list that is primarily negative because think about it, this is how it works in life, isn't it? Not doing a bunch of stuff doesn't usually earn you anything. So, you know, imagine it's annual review time, or whatever the equivalent is for you. And you need to justify how you've been spending your time. 
Show your employer, whoever it is, that it's good that you're on the team. It's good that you're there. Justify yourself. Well, what do you do? Well, you don't just list off all the things that you haven't done. You know? So I think, I think you'll be very pleased to hear that I haven't murdered anybody this year. I haven't stolen any office equipment. And no clients have sacked me due to total inactivity on my part. See? It doesn't work like that. If you want to prove yourself to your employer, you say what you have done. Here are all the amazing things I've been doing with my time this year that prove that I'm meant to be here and it's a good thing. But you see, the Ten Commandments aren't set up to allow you to do that. Instead, they're expressed rather as boundaries. And this idea goes back to the very first commandment that God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden. So you might recognize this. Don't worry if you haven't heard this before. But what does God say to Adam in Genesis chapter 2? He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, do you see what, I mean, and often we, we, we even miss this when we read it. We just, like Adam, focus on the one thing he was told he couldn't do. But God said, no, you, there, are, there are so many trees here. Eat from any of them. But there is one from which you must not eat. And the reason for that, as becomes clear, is to eat from that particular tree is to become like God. And Adam needs to remember he's not God. And there are boundaries on what is good for him as a creature who has been made by God. And it's the same kind of principle with the Ten Commandments, you see. He sets boundaries for his free people. He says there is so much freedom here. He's not telling us these are the many things you must do. I'm going to tell you when you get up in the morning, here are all the things you must do. He doesn't do that. He just says here are some boundaries within which there is much freedom. Because he's making the first move. He's already rescued us. He's already shown us his love. And it's always like that. It's the same logic when we come to the New Testament. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 5. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Didn't wait for us to be good, to turn our lives around. He took the initiative. He made the first move by sending a saviour to die for sinners. And that changes everything in how we relate to God. I was listening this week to one of my favourite podcasts, The Rest is History. I don't know if you've come across it, it's quite relatively well known, I think, these days. And he was talking about the eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79, you know, and famously destroyed Pompeii, Herculaneum. And one of the presenters, Dominic Sandbrook, asked Tom Holland, the, the historian there, the two presenters, um, the ancient historian, he said, did the Romans struggle with the kind of questions people might struggle with today when that kind of horrible disaster happens? In other words, you know, would, they, would, they have been, would the Romans have been sitting there going, how could the gods that, they, that we believe in allow this to happen? Which is the kind of question, so later in the 18th century... There was the great earthquake in Lisbon, in Portugal. And that was a, that was a great event that, that really shook the faith of uh, many people at that time. So, so Dominic Sandbrook was saying, was it the same kind of response back there in AD 79? And an ancient historian, Tom Holland, said, no, actually, it didn't shake their faith at all. 
because the gods they believed in were distant gods that you had to appease with your sacrifices and your good deeds. And if life did not go well, it, well, it just meant you hadn't done enough sacrifices. So they treated their gods like a kind of portfolio of, of insurance policies. And they concluded, oh, we must have missed a payment somewhere. Uh, so, and that's why we're suffering the consequences. See, it's, 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 it's a sort of negative, slightly miserable way to view things, but it sort of makes sense. And actually, it's only, you see, it's only Christians who believe in this kind of loving God who makes the first move, who then even get to ask the question, how could a God of love allow something, uh, some kind of suffering to happen? Now, it's a good question, it's a reasonable question, but it's a question only Christians get to ask, because we believe in this God who is like the waterfall, not the damp flannel. And actually, yes, the answers to questions like that, they're not straightforward, but they begin by going back to verses like chapter 20, verse 2, and remembering what kind of God God is. That when we're faced with questions that we don't understand, and we're faced with experiences, and we think, how could God allow this to happen? Well, we go back and we start by remembering his character. He's the God whose love overflows. He makes the first move. It's not because we have messed up in our, uh, missed something that we're supposed to have done, and that's why this terrible thing has happened. No, he's a God that we don't always understand, and that's okay, because he's God and we're not. But he's a God who is like the gushing waterfall. He makes the first move. And that's absolutely foundational. We're going to have to keep coming back to that as we go through the, 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 the Ten Commandments. But then let's, let it, let's get into verse 3. Let's get into this first commandment. God demands first place. He demands first place. So these are just eight words here, I think, is that if, I've, if I've counted right. You shall have no other gods before me. A few short words, but it raises big questions. So what are the questions? Well, hang on a minute. No other gods? So hang on a minute. I thought the whole point was there weren't any other gods. And of course the Bible is true. It's clear that that's true. That God is the only true God. He made the universe. But the point is, of course, as we see throughout the Bible, there are many false gods. Gods, which aren't real, and that's the whole point about them. They're not real. But they hold real spiritual power over people, both back then and even now today. Other gods, like as this is referring to today, don't necessarily take the form of rival deities in the sky, but they are people or things, often abstract things, that in some way we imagine are really responsible for the course of our lives. The things in which we find our ultimate security. The things we think we can't live without. The things we dream about and long for and imagine would solve all our problems. Martin Luther put it like this. He said, the first commandment is saying, we must fear, love and trust God more than anything else. That's what it's saying. And yet we know and so often we don't. Okay, so no other gods, but then he says, before me, what does that mean? Well, literally, it means in my presence, before my face. And of course, God is the God who is present everywhere, because he made the universe. There is nowhere we can go to escape from his presence. So no other gods before me. 
means no secret compartments that we imagine are free from his gaze. You know, yes, I'll give God 95%, but I'm just holding back a little bit that, you know, only I know about, we think. Well, no. God knows everything. Everything is before him. No other gods before him. But what then about the Richard Dawkins type accusation that, you know, only a megalomaniac would demand that he take first place in everything? I mean, what an ugly thing to, to demand. Of the, you know, to, what a tyrant God. Well, of course, that misses the point of who God is. See, the reason why it's so ugly when dictators and tyrants demand 100% loyalty or else you're carted off to prison and never heard of again, the reason that is so ugly is because they are merely creatures and not the creator. So how can they, as mere creatures, no different from those over whom they rule, possibly deserve the adulation and the worship that they crave? No, it's ugly, it's awful. But God is different, you see. He's not a creature, but he's the one who made everything. It's all his. He really is Lord of all. And that means that when God says, no other gods but me, he's not saying something that goes against the grain of who we really are. Deep down, you know, this is something unnatural and weird. No, this is what we were created for, to live in relationship with him as his creatures, where he takes first place. And remember who this God is who demands first place. It is the God who makes the first move. Not the far-off, distant God waiting for us to please him with his wagging finger, you know, waiting for us to fail, but the God who loves and rescues us while we were still sinners. So you shall have no other gods before me is, is like how it works in a marriage. So think about faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness in marriage isn't and a sort of unreasonable, egocentric demand, is it? It is intrinsic to what a loving relationship looks like. And that's how it works with God, you see. Once we understand how much we are loved in Christ and how great that waterfall is, the only right response is undivided loyalty to this God. So before we finish then, let's think a little about what that means to say God comes first, he has first place. What does that actually mean in our lives? How do we know if he is in first place, as it were? There's a sense in which it's not just about whether we're willing to be obedient, although it is about that, whether we're willing to, you know, if we know that God says something is wrong, if we know there's a boundary in place that he's put in place for our good, do we take that seriously? That is all part of saying God is first place. So it is about that, and go his way in decision making, but it's more than that. It's also about what captures our affections and our love. You see, again, in a marriage, just to think about that analogy, if a husband's or wife's affections are cold or at best kind of lukewarm towards their spouse, but red hot towards somebody else, or something, something isn't right. And it's a parallel kind of situation. So if in fact our hearts are captured by someone or something that isn't God and that we're living, all we can think about, we're orienting our whole lives around this thing and it's not God or not, or not acknowledging him, well that's not putting him first in 
our lives. But it can still be difficult to know, well, how do I know if I'm actually doing that? How do I know if I'm replacing God in my life? Because God has put us in the world where there, are, there is pleasure as part of his creation. There are things that we can enjoy as gifts from him. And so is it saying, well, no, you can't take any enjoyment in these things? Well, no, this is a good world that God has made with plenty to enjoy. So how do I know when I'm enjoying those things in a way that gives all the glory to God? And how do I know when I'm doing it in a way that pushes him out of the way? Well, one way of, of thinking about it that I came across recently is to think about the difference between enjoying the first mouthful of something or the last mouthful of something. So this is where this extraordinary pudding on the, on the screen comes in. I don't know if you recognise this wonderful creation. It is a photograph of a chocolate glory at Pizza Express. Sadly, no longer on the menu. But let me tell you about the chocolate glory. Unimaginably huge quantities of ice cream mixed in with chocolate fudge cake and chocolate sauce. And, and when it starts, and you begin, they put it down in front of you, you go, oh, this is, this is amazing. And you start, you take the first spoonful, and it feels like there's so much there that you think, this is going to go on forever. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. And of course, you know, yes, of course I'll share a mouthful with you. Why wouldn't I? There's so much to go around. Of course, there's so much here. It's wonderful. But then by the end, it does actually come to an end. And when you get to the end and you're near that sort of last spoonful, well, actually, no, 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 you definitely can't have a mouthful now. It's mine. And as I approach the last mouthful, I'm really starting to wonder if I, how I'm going to survive in a world with no further chocolate glory in it today. You see, we often go through life as if every experience, every pleasure is the last mouthful. So grab it while you can, because tomorrow there may be famine. And so if we're making an idol out of wealth or pleasure or work or health or fitness or whatever it is, well, we will do whatever it takes to drive those things in our lives. They will take first place in our decision making. And we might derive enjoyment from these things, but it's an enjoyment tinged with fear that tomorrow it might be all gone. And then how would we cope? So it drives us. It's a last mouthful enjoyment. But there is a different way of receiving these things as a first mouthful of much greater things to come. It's not that tomorrow there might be famine. Well, tomorrow, in the new heavens and the new earth perhaps, but certainly with God, with Jesus, there will be something even greater than whatever it is that you're enjoying now. So thank God for whatever that first mouthful is that you have today in the spirit that, yeah, it's not going to last. It's not going to go on forever, but that's okay. Because you're not living for holidays or career success or health and fitness or whatever it is. You are, you'll enjoy those things if they come, but you'll hold them lightly. You'll thank God for them. And you'll know that in the end, it's only life with him that lasts through death. And so you can be generous. You can be open-handed with these gifts now, not consume them as if everything depends on squeezing everything we can out of this one thing. 
Now, of course, if today is not about pleasure for you, um, and, and not about things that might rival your affection for God, if today actually is a day of pain and sadness for some reason, as it will be for some, it's, a, it's another reminder, even as we experience those things, and we read this commandment, that actually the one thing that matters in the end is whether we know God. And if we do know him through Jesus, well, then the future is bright. However it feels today, it's a good thing. If he is first place in our hearts, no one can take that away. And not even the experience that we might be experiencing now can, can spoil that. And that relationship with him that starts now and lasts forever. If we have Jesus, we have all we need. And it's with Jesus that we need to end. One of the things that we will think about more over the coming weeks is how this law that God gave his people doesn't just tell us about him, which is the main thing we've seen this morning, things that are true about God. Uh, it does tell us about him. It, it tells us about ourselves and what we ought to be doing. But it also highlights our faults, the law. It shows us what we're not doing, the ways that we have fallen short, the boundaries we have crossed. And if we're honest, we'll know God does not have first place in our hearts in the way that he should. And we confessed that earlier in the words of our confession. And in a few minutes, we'll come to the Lord's table. And we'll come not with hands full of things that we've done to prove how much we deserve God's love, but we come, of course, with empty hands, don't we? To receive what God has given us in Christ, remembering he made the first move. And remembering then that Jesus came into the world and he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength and he loved his neighbour as himself. He perfectly kept the Ten Commandments in a way that we never do. And he died on the cross in our place and he rose from the dead and now united to him by the Holy Spirit we get to live a new life with God as our Father and Jesus as our brother where God takes first place. And we live trusting him. So as we read these commandments, we don't despair. We see what the life that is being held out to us looks like as those who've been rescued. And then we put our trust in Jesus. And united to him by the Spirit, we live this impossible looking life. Day by day, one step at a time. Confessing our sin, getting up again. And walking afresh with the God who loves us. Makes the first move sent his son to die for us. Let's just pause now, reflect on what God is saying to us personally, and then I'll say a few words about the Lord's table as we come to receive the Lord's Supper together. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We praise you, Father, that...
As we trust in Jesus, we know we are rescued people who have already been forgiven, who are loved and accepted despite our sin and our failings. You shall have no other gods before me. We know that naturally before you, we do put other things first. And yet you forgive us. And you give us a fresh start in Jesus. And so walking with him, we declare afresh that you are our God. <clears throat> and we want to live trusting in you alone. Help us to see <clears throat> more and more what that looks like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.